Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Bergen. He is Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of California, San Diego, in the US. His research interests include language comprehension and production, including grammar, word meaning, metaphor, profanity, and talking while driving. He is also the author of the books Louder Than Words, The New Science of How the Mind Makes Meaning, and What the F, What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and ourselves. So, Dr. Bergen, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, great. So, I mean, I guess that there's a very interesting field developing, I guess, for the past a couple of decades or so that has to do with embodied cognition, that is thinking about cognition not only centered on our brains or even our nervous system or our higher brain functions, but I mean really trying to understand how the brain is incorporated in a body that is structured in a particular way and interacts with the world in a particular way. So uh, am I right about that? that? That's right. I think that you've, uh, as well as anyone can, <laughs> captured what people globally agree on um, when, they're, when they're using the terms embodied cognition. They may vary a lot in terms of exactly how they think that cognition is embodied and what evidence would be that cognition is embodied. Uh, some people might think that um, it's sufficient for the body to have been important in the formation of concepts and conceptual structure, that it then gets incorporated into some other sort of representational processing system. Um, other people think that in order to be truly embodied, you still have to be using parts of the body or parts of the brain that control the body in order to perform other sort of higher order cognitive tasks. And that's the that's that that's a necessary threshold for something to be called embodied. But yes, the, the general idea is maybe cognition doesn't stop at the frontal lobe or at the brain case or even with as you said, the the nervous system more generally. Uh, maybe maybe we compute um, in the sense that cognition is computation, maybe we compute with our bodies. Maybe we, we compute with the world, and maybe it's hard to draw a firm line around a particular, you know, piece of tissue or uh, part of the body, and say, well, this is where the cognition is happening, but not out here. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very interesting because when it comes to cognition, people immediately, I guess most people immediately think about the brain and center on the brain. But uh, we've been found, we've been f uh, finding that um, there are at least, for example, by developing some robots, some simple robots that just by the mechanics of them or the way they are organized. I mean, the body itself can contain a lot of information or can even remember information about the environment itself, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I, I think that we do this all the time too. We're like those robots. We just don't often notice it. So, you know, in, in I don't know if you do this, uh, but uh, a lot of Americans don't know what months have how many days, um, but their knuckles do. So they count January, February, March, April, and so so it's the interaction of the body that that has a particular structure with a with an algorithm for interacting with the body while performing a, this routine. So there's a lot of stuff that happens. Now you can internalize it. You can visualize what your knuckles look like on your fist and counting January, February, March, April. Um, but again, that's 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 using the body to perform calculations, and uh, and we do lots of this. So when we're planning uh, action, when we're remembering action, we may activate motor systems. Uh, when we're planning um, behavior and need to compute pr appropriate trajectories or need to uh, decide what the environment will look like. Uh, that triggers a particular action, then we may do visual imagery and auditory imagery and so on. And, and these are all ways that we're using our sensory motor systems to, uh, to do the things that they're best at in order to, at the highest level, 
achieve some outcome that the organism wants to uh, achieve. Mm -hmm. So I guess that when it comes to questions like mind-brain dualism, if we include something like embodied cognition, then that distinction between the mind and the body or the mind and the brain, uh, I mean, uh, becomes even more senseless, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense at all to talk about the brain as being some sort of substance that is sort of floating in the air and that uh, performs some operations that are completely disconnected from the way the body is organized. I think it doesn't make sense to talk about the brain is discontinuous with the rest of the body. Um, but there, you see the, the whole range of beliefs about the relationship between mind and physical substance among embodiment proponents that you see for others. So it could very well be that there is a mind and it has its own representational format and, you know, can be understood as, as, um, as distinct. Um, uh, it's still going to be tied in some important way to the body. Um, but whether it can be reduced to the body or not, I think people are a little bit more um, uh, more ambivalent about that. Oh, okay, I understand. So, and what do you, what do you think we would lose if we were to try to study human cognition and exclude, uh, I mean, the rest of the body apart from the brain and the nervous system, and so basically excluding the entire field of embodied cognition. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd get a lot of things right. You, you would be able to make lots of predictions about, in a kind of, uh, you can sort of think of it as kind of, in a kind of behaviorist way. Like, um, you know, you, you have this, uh, you know, you have this disembodied brain in a vat, and brains are really powerful machines, and they do have lots of structure um, that develops over development. Um, and so, if you were to take, uh, if you were to take such a thing, and you were to compute, you were figure out figure out a way to send it inputs that were as though they were sensory inputs, and you were able to allow it to send outputs that were, you would probably, I mean, that sort of thought experiment, you could do a lot. Brains can do a lot. Um, one question is, how would that brain get to be the way that it is? Because of course, you don't get a fully formed, say, adult brain um, without having experience in a body in a world where that body interacts with the world and so on so you'd have to imagine you know disembodying a brain that had been dis that had been embodied to such a point um, but in certain ways it would behave very similarly I think that there are some ways in which it would not behave similarly um, uh, one way is uh, that it would have trouble um, with actual behaviors in the world so if you uh, if you so like the like the ones that I was mentioning, so um, uh, if you disembodied my brain right now, it would take me longer. I would have a harder time, and I would perform different operations trying to tell you how many days June has. Um, I would uh, I would have a harder time if you disembodied uh, my brain. I would have a harder time. I might might not might or might not be able to do it um, uh, to uh, to make predictions about um, you know the trajectory of a frisbee. Um, where uh, a lot of what I do when I see a frisbee flying, and now I've got to make a prediction about it. I mean, yes, there I'm performing, you know, I'm doing naive physics in my head, but I'm also probably using uh, the physical structure of my body to perform that operation to track the frisbee. And by continuing by following the simple rule of tracking the frisbee, that reduces the complexity of the the sort of physics predictions I have to make because I've kept one thing stable, right? I'm keeping the Frisbee in the same place in my visual field. Um, so lots of sorts of things that I would have trouble doing. Um, but brains are super powerful things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So uh, one, one topic that you're very interested in is language. And what right. is the relationship then between embodied cognition and language? I mean, what can we get from embodied cognition as some sort of insights that, about how language works, how we comprehend and acquire and produce language that we wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. Right. So largely, I think it has to do with learning and it has to do with meaning. Yeah. So uh, in, in the first case, of course, 
no one would disagree that most of how we learn language is through interactions using our perceptual motor systems. Um, and regardless of the modality, whether it's a science language or a spoken language, whether it's written forms of language. Um, and uh, so I, I'm going to sort of set that aside because there's basically no debate there. We know that you have to be, you, you can't learn language except, except through using your body. Um, in terms of adult use of language, um, I think that the most relevant bit has to do with with meaning. So there are different there are different accounts of how meaning works. Um, and uh, uh, you know we can we can get into the different stories, but um at the at the very least, uh, a a good theory of meaning has to be one that allows uh, the success, successful alignment of speakers and hearers or writers and readers or whatever. Um, and uh, in terms of their internal mental states. So I have some objective. I want you to do something or understand something or feel some way. And I'm going to flap my lips for a little while and some sound waves are going to come out and be transmitted through, uh, you know, to satellites and they're going to come down um, and, and get spit out of your, your headphones. And um, something's going to happen in your brain. And so that what happens in your brain has to be some alignment such that you uh, know something new about uh, uh, about what I intended for you to feel or know or do. And um, theories of that range from um, merely a system internal computations of a sort of abstract form all the way to um, much more embodied accounts like the like the ones that, that I write about um, more. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the 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 place that embodiment has a, makes a contribution here is in terms of the fleshing out of the meaning. So if I if I give you a sentence, if I say, um, uh, if I say, uh, my I, I'm sorry, my I'm sorry, my headphones are so huge. I have earbuds, uh, but they have the wrong uh, jack. They they have a jack for an iPhone, not a jack for uh, a regular audio port. Okay. That may or may not make sense to you. Hopefully, it makes sense to you, um, because the iPhone has this really annoying, i this really annoying jack, right? And you may know about the shape of that jack and the size of that jack, and the incompatibility of that jack to uh, the typical audio port in uh, uh, in uh, a laptop computer. And so, okay, so how do you understand that sentence? Well, part of how you understand that sentence may be evoking representations that have come through the visual modality of the shape and size of those things and the experience of those not thing, those things not fitting together, of jacks not fitting together. Maybe they're motor experiences, maybe they're affective experiences of, you know, like uh, being really angry at Steve Jobs for, you know, this being his last, you know, the last, the last way that he cursed humanity by taking away the, the, uh, the audio jack in the iPhone or, um, you know, there, there's lots of, lots of rich information that you have there from the visual modality, from the phys from the motor modality, from uh, from affect, from emotion, and that may all go into your understanding of why it is that I have these gigantic cans on my ears, right? Um, that there was an in there was an incompatibility of fit of the device that I had, the two devices that I had, and that led me to have to choose something else. And you may even know other things, like you may have some prediction, therefore, about what the end of this wire looks like, right? You know that it's not one of those fat things, it's one of this, the circular things, right? One of the round things. Um, and you know, therefore, that it can fit into the jack that I described in my computer. So you're making lots of inferences that go beyond the sort of basic compositional meaning of the words of where I describe what, you know, what jack I have. You make inferences about, okay, it's because of the incompatibility of these two things, but the compatibility of this other more archaic thing that that they would fit together, that electricity would pass through, that uh, I would be able to hear and be able to use it in a conversation. So, so, so in terms of the sort of high level composition of the contributions of meaning of different words and the inferences that you can draw about why I would say the thing that I did and what I meant by it and what consequences it has for why you're looking at what you're looking at, those seem to be derived largely from history of perception, action, and and affect. Um, and you may be using those that knowledge in real time in language comprehension to 
be able to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. Um, that's the major contribution that uh, that I've written about um, is yeah. is in terms of meaning. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, does that mean that there's a relationship uh, between language and the perceptual, the motor and the affective systems of our brain, something like that? Right. So that's the story. So this is a relatively more narrow kind of embodiment. You know, this isn't, um, you know, you get dumber when your cell phone is is next to you, uh, you know, uh, kind of embodiment. This is... Um, <clears throat> This is you use systems of the brain in multiple ways. Some systems of the, the brain you use for actual motor control and also for Im imagery about motor control. And we think also for simulating what it would like to, per to perform actions that are described by language or implied by language so that you can understand what the language entails. Yeah. So it's a kind of, so it's, yeah, so it, like, like you said, it's kind of you're using systems of the brain um, very um, uh, liberally for a bunch of different functions, including motor control and to perform computations that allow you to understand what motor control activities would be part of what's described by language. Mm -hmm. And so that includes doing simulations in our brain, right? And that would lead us to what you call, for example, the, or you and other people, the embodied simulation hypothesis. Right. So, so the, and that's that's that very same idea. It's the idea that uh, to really succeed in understanding meaning, yeah. where language is such a narrow bandwidth. You know, you get a couple words, and they're in really strict orders, and the words totally underspecify the actual intent and the detailed meaning. You know, I have a word cat. I don't have 50 words for different kinds of cats, for fat cats and tall cats and, uh, hair, and you know, uh, hairless cats. I have a word cat. Um, but if we know what cat we're talking about, if we're talking, do you know who Garfield is? Does yeah. Garfield exist? Okay, so yeah. um, so if I talk about Garfield, I mean, we're talking about Garfield, and I say, well, um, so um, so the cat jumped off of uh, jumped off of the windowsill. You know things about the color of the cat; it's orange. You know things about the shape of the cat; it's round. All that stuff has to be filled in by you. And the embodied simulation hypothesis goes that you do fill in that information. Not always, but in, in many circumstances you do. And when you do so, you use systems of your brain that have evolved to be best equipped to do exactly that. So your vision system happens to be really good at perceiving and then reactivating representations of uh, visual content. And so if you're doing, if, if you want to have visual information about uh, the cat, then why not use the vision system? You've already got it, you've, it it's already, tuned for that over millions of years and well millions plus dozens of years however long you've been you've been alive um uh both over development and over evolution that system is really good at doing that so maybe an efficient way to solve the problem of knowing what the cat looks like in a sentence is to recruit that system to perform some cal calculations and incorporate that into an ongoing representation of what the meaning is mm -hmm. But all of these systems, I mean, they can be interfered with, right? So, for example, uh, there we can, with mental imagery, interfere with how people actually perceive the world, right? For example. That's right. And so that's one of the key tools that you use experimentally to figure out whether people are using these sensory motor systems, and if so, exactly what they're doing with them. So uh, lots of experiments, and, and uh, you know, there are, there are important uh, thought leaders in this area who have developed these methods. Um, uh, uh, people like Larry Barcelo and uh, Rolf Zwan, Art Glenberg, um, are people who have come up with ways to test whether uh, a particular um, a particular type of simulation is ongoing during language comprehension by yeah. either uh, priming it or uh, or by interfering with it in different ways. So, but yeah, in principle, if you could interfere with the ability to use your vision system in some particular way, maybe if you could interfere with the ability to uh, activate neurons that uh, that reflect orangeness, um, if you could do that. 
then maybe you would shift a person's ability to understand the sentence about Garfield just a little bit. You'd make it a little bit harder for them to uh, make inferences about the visual features of Garfield. Maybe not about other features about Garfield, but maybe the visual features of Garfield would be interfered with. And that's sort of the general gist of how these experiments go. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. So we can do exper experiments that allow us uh, that allow for us to understand really what is the precise kind of simulation that is going on on people's brains or heads and that they are using to uh, interpret something, for example. That's right. So Art Glenberg has a really cool set of experiments that do this. Um, I think they're, they're just a great example of it. So um, he's interested in, in motor simulation. Like, are people representing what it would be like to perform described actions. So you handed your brother the keys or your brother handed you the keys. So if you handed your brother the keys, you would be performing an action where maybe your hand would be going away from your body. If your brother handed you your, you the keys, maybe your hand would be going towards your body. It's the sort of you know ultimate action. Um, but are you using your motor system to represent action in each of those directions? And so he's got this cool series of experiments where he fatigues the... Uh, the participant's ability to uh, plan that action. It's sort of like a, um, it's a habituation type of experiment. And so he gives the, he gives subjects this jar with beans in it, a lot of beans, like hundreds and hundreds of dry beans. And their job is to move those beans, one bean at a time from the jar onto a, onto a plate. So now they're moving beans and they do this like 600 times. And this is, Onerous. This is an onerous, onerous task. No one, no one likes, no one likes moving 600 beans one at a time. I, I don't, um, I don't think it causes any harm uh, to the participants except, you know, boredom, fatigue, frustration. Yeah. Um, or in another condition, they might be doing it in an opposite direction. So they might be moving the beans from away from them towards their body. So they, but you know, they're just moving the same bean. And then after they do this, they're, uh, they get, they get language that they're supposed to process. And that language is, uh, again, language that describes action away from your body or towards your body, where you would move away or towards, uh, away from or towards your body, and they measure reaction time. And, and the startling effect is that if you are have been habituated to or fatigued at moving your hand away from your body, and then you get a sentence describing action away from your body, you're actually slower to understand that sentence. Mm. You might think, you know, well, if it's just about you know, similarity between the actions, you'd be faster. But no, it's, it's as if whatever neurons in your motor system are planning that action, they've become habituated to this sort of baseline activity. Their, their baseline uh, firing rate is lower. And so when you have to understand a sentence, you have to decide if it makes sense or not, um, that it takes you longer to decide that a sentence about performing an action in the same direction makes sense. And conversely, for actions that are in the opposite direction. So, um, so that's the kind of experiment that you would run. And there are others of, uh, as well. Of course, that's, the, that's an interference study. It sort of provides strong evidence of the functional role of those systems in that particular task. But, you know, there are imaging studies as well, you know, to sort of localize where and when this activity is happening and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And uh, let me ask you now, since we're, we're also talking about language, I mean, I think it was the philosopher Jerry Fodor that, that came up with the concept mentalism, right? To refer to a, a sort of language of thought that precedes uh, verbal language, let's say, and that probably gives a basis to it, at least according to him. So, uh, I mean, what do you think about this idea of uh, as having a language of mentalism or something that uh, um, we have stored in our brain as information that precedes language? Let's yeah, uh, I think it's a really complicated idea. Um, yeah. So it's, it's clearly a useful idea in certain ways. So if you believe that there's some executive control system that is making decisions, that is uh, making, uh, that is selecting over representations, has to use those representations, and where those representations about thought have to interface with lots of other systems that have totally different kinds of operations, 
that perform them on totally different types of representations. So like if you have a vision system that's just performing operations on, uh, you know, colors and edges and, you know, movement and stuff like that, and it's got to communicate in some way with a central representational system, then a good solution is to say, well, there's a single representational format that allows for the communication uh, that, that, you know, you, that really does the thinking part and that is the interface system. Um, okay. Um, I think it's also useful at a sort of a high level of description. You know, we know that we can't explain cognition neuron by neuron, right? We, mm -hmm. Cognition is just far too complex and there are far too many neurons with far, with behavior that we don't understand and too, far too many connections. We don't have the full reduction yet. So even if you believe that that full reduction will exist, um, not to mention the body, even if you feel that that you're confident that that full reduction will exist, still it's oftentimes useful to have some sort of intermediate level of representation, you know, uh, some some functional level description of what do we think the brain is doing? What's the software like that's running on the hardware of the brain and body? And, and mentalese uh, or language of thought is one such hypothesis about a useful level to describe thought at. Um, all of that said, it seems um, uh, it seems unlikely to me, just given the diversity of semantics that you see in the world's languages, that that all languages get translated into a single, common, uh, innate, uh, internal language. Um, it's also very hard to to know how you would test that. It seems largely unfalsifiable because a language of thought is supposed to be something that is not like any language in that it's not actually expressed. Um, and uh, so it's hard to know how to measure it. But, you know, to give an, to give an example, um, uh, uh, you know, English, uh, English segments the world of emotions into uh, a different number of categories than, say, Portuguese does or the Chinese does. Um, you know, it, it would be hard to make an argument that there is a single right set of emotion concepts in in, in the language of thought, in mentalese, that um, is, I guess, would have to be the superset of all possible emotion concepts that are expressed in all the languages of the world and say that each language only selects a subset of those. The problem being, of course, that they overlap in lots of ways. So it would have to be that there's a single set, the single set which is the superset of all possible emotion concepts. So happy in English is kind of like happy in Portuguese, but not exactly because there are these differences. And so there would have to be two happies in the language of thought and English happens to pick the English one and Portuguese happens to pick the Portuguese one. And, um, you know, you could sort of imagine it getting very, very complicated, very fast. Um, there are also, there's also the problem of fiberglass, fiberglass power boats. Um, you know, uh, there are lots of things in the world that shouldn't have evolved as concepts because when humans were evolving their concept, their their brains, um, at least to the stable point that they've been for the last whatever a couple hundred thousand years, they, those artifacts didn't exist. So Fodor takes up the case of fiber fiberglass power boats, um, you know, uh, speedboats, other things that don't that didn't exist a hundred thousand years ago, um, yeah. and argues that they must be innate concepts uh, because concepts can't in language of thought can't be learned through language or other sorts of things and that to me is very um very fedorian in that it's uh, extremely controversial and fun but also patently false um so it seems to me that their mentalese is an interesting hypothesis but i don't see that it produces generates a lot of sort of advances in research at present mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. I understand the complications there, but I guess that there is another idea associated with mentalism. That is, uh, for example, we can have thoughts without language, right? So, as, and sometimes we even have thoughts that it's really difficult for us to translate into language. And so, there's this sort of idea out there that thought would precede language, that people would be able to think even if they wouldn't have language with them, but okay. maybe then language would facilitate thinking or something like that, and then there's the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis about how language might influence thought, right? So, uh, I, I mean, about all of those things, um, what is your opinion? Do you think that 
language can really strongly influence thought? Or yeah. Oh, great. Um, you know, we've seen some evidence that there are ways that people think differently, uh, depending on lots of dimensions of their individual experiences with the world. Um, you know, uh, people think differently about what they can do based on what their bodies can do. People think differently about, um, uh, people think different about categories based on the sort of the cultural categories that they are exposed to. Um, you know, we see this happening all the time with language, of course, because language imposes category structures. It requires you to do certain things. So in Portuguese, you have to worry about the gender of nouns. Is this a feminine noun or a masculine noun? In English, we don't have to do that. And so, you know, that splits up the world into the world of nouns in Portuguese into these two categories. Now, those are two largely arbitrary categories. In Portuguese, the word for man is male, and the word for uh, is, is masculine, and the word for woman is, is feminine. But what about the word for table? Why is the word for table feminine? Yeah. Uh, you know, are fit tables particularly feminine? What about a really big, powerful, strong, like stereotypically male table? Would that then would still be feminine, right? Okay, so it's, it seems to be why is a, why is a, a tree masculine in Portuguese? It is, right? Masculine? Uh, no, it's feminine. Tree? Tree, Tree is? is yeah, it's feminine. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uma árvore. So uma, it's feminine. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, well, I got it wrong. So, 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 and why? Um, it, it is different from language to language. And, you know, these are arbitrary conventions that arise in a language for really complicated reasons. Um, other languages divide world the world in different ways. Some languages divide gender differently in not human gender. I'm not just in biological gender, not just into male and female, but male, female, and something else. Some languages require every time you count something to put a little marker called a classifier on the, on the number to say what shape it is. So like Japanese, for example, you have to, you have these classifiers. If you're counting cups, you have to use one classifier, two cup shaped things, if you're counting pieces of paper, it's two two flat things. Yeah. Um, so those things those things in language appear to affect how people think conventionally. So the things that people pay attention to when they're perceiving the world, the things that they remember best about about scenes in the world, whether they remember who did something, how intentionally they did it. Some languages encode for intentionality. What the shape of the thing was, what the um, uh, what the color of the thing was so on, um, they, they seem to influence uh, the category structures that people construct uh, as measured by sort of subjective similarity between things. If you ask people, um, whether, if you ask Portuguese people whether a tree is more similar to, uh, uh, to a table, they'll say that a tree is more similar to a table than a tree is to, uh, I'm going to guess it's something masculine, uh, a, a wall. Is wall masculine? Uh, no, no, wall is also feminine. Is everything is everything feminine in Portuguese? Um, <laughs> no, uh, uh, no but, but you could say, for example, uh, a microphone. So okay, microphone. A microphone okay. in Portuguese is masculine. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so so um so if you have people perform similarity judgments, just ask how similar is a microphone to a tree. People will say not very similar at all, but <clears throat> but people who speak a language where they're in different categories, like Portuguese, will say they're even more dissimilar. Than people yeah. who think who, for, for whose languages they're in the same category. So there, there seem to be lots of effects like this. Now, do those count as profoundly affecting thought? So deeply affecting thought. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know what it counts. Well, I don't know how. I don't know how you measure profound profundity of effect uh, on thought. But I do know how you can measure their effects on perception, attention, uh, memory categorization, similarity. And so, you know, in the sort of assembly, assemblage of things that we use to measure thought, there seem to be effects in like all of them. So, uh, you know, is it impossible to think a thought that your language doesn't give you? That's sort of the linguistic determinism idea, right? That's the sort of most extreme version. Yeah. Um, that seems, that also seems pretty unlikely. You know, if, you know, there, there, there are, are words in languages that um, that don't exist in my native language. That as soon as they're explained to me, I can understand them. Yeah. You know, German has language has a word Schadenfreude, which is um, 
it, which is happiness at others' misfortune. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that seems like a really useful concept. And so, as soon as someone explains it to you, you can sort of understand mm -hmm. it. And if that word then gets introduced into your language and you start using it, schadenfreude, schadenfreude, then, um, then maybe it becomes is as solidified as a concept. Maybe that having a word makes it easier as a concept, easier to access, easier to perceive, easier to remember, and so on. But I'm not sure that having the word limits your ability to think the concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so probably when it comes to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, if there's something to it, probably uh, we would have a weak version of it. That, that's what, I think that's where the evidence points, right? Clearly the language you speak affects dimensions of thought, um, but does not uh, radically constrain possible thought. That seems to be, as far as I can tell, that's where the evidence is pointing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and doesn't constrain completely how you perceive the world. Neither. Right, right. People seem to be able to perceive, uh, you know, I, just because I don't have a word for this color doesn't mean I can't perceive it at all. It's going to affect the way that I perceive it and how similar I think it is to other things that I can perceive. But it doesn't, uh, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't shut off my ability to perceive it at all. Yeah, sure. But but then this leads us to an interesting thing that is, so because people experience the world differently and they have specific actions and percepts. Uh, I mean, and then they vary by culture, for example. Uh, and if meaning is also influenced by how people perceive the world and the, how they are influenced by their culture, then, I mean, these things, how we think, how we perceive the world, etc., varies from individual to individual and from culture to culture, right? Sure. Yeah, that's that's that follows logically, and there's some evidence that that's true. So, if you speak a language that has a that's practiced in a in a different cultural background where you have different, uh, you use your body differently, then you will understand the same language differently. Um, you know, it, I think about the example um, of waiting for a bus. So, so if 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 um, if you tell me, oh, I was waiting for a bus on the corner. Um, uh, I might come up with some image of what that would be like. Now, I've never been to Portugal, um, but I might. But I might imagine that um, uh, that there are um, that when you're waiting for a bus, there may be a sign or something uh, mm -hmm. for yeah. for a bus, and maybe there are benches. Uh, maybe yes. there are maybe there are coverings over the benches. You know, so yeah, people stand some, and stand. That's sort of sometimes, sometimes depends on rural, urban, maybe different. Okay, um, so so I imagine you standing and waiting for the bus. Maybe you're playing on your phone. Maybe I maybe 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 I, I think that when you were waiting for the bus, you were uh, sitting on a bench. Okay, if you were if however uh, I were someone who grew up in in, in mainland China and was used to uh, people waiting for buses in China, I might be more likely to envision um, squatting. The way that you wait for buses in China largely is you squat, um, because yeah, that. Yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah. Right. So, so, yeah. So, so, so uh, in part because uh, maybe the infrastructure isn't there, but also because squatting is just a totally normal, accepted way to be waiting at a place. Whereas in California, you don't see a lot of people squatting while waiting for a bus. They're either sitting or they're standing. Maybe they're sitting on the curb. You know, they could yeah. be sitting like flesh, but you don't see squatting. So um, the exact same sentence, I was waiting for the bus, could evoke totally different ideas of what happened. So maybe I think that uh, uh, maybe I think that your legs should be sore from waiting for a long time if you were squatting versus sitting. Maybe I, maybe I would uh, um, maybe I think that your clothes are not well suited for squatting. Maybe your clothes are too tight. So I might wonder, well, how could you be waiting for the bus so long with such tight pants? It must have been very uncomfortable if I think that you were squatting. So there are all sorts of different inferences that you might draw based on your own, your cultural background. And then, of course, there are individual differences as well within a culture. Mm -hmm. So this also means that people don't simulate things in their heads all the same way. Uh, it depends on their personal experiences and even I guess we can introduce here the topic of cognitive capacities, because uh, I, if I remember correctly, in one of your books, at least you talk about different cognitive styles that people have. Like, for example, there are verbalizers and visualizers. So could you tell us about that, please? Yeah. So uh, 
so people have both different aptitudes to perform particular tasks in particular ways, and they also have different propensities to do so. And this cognitive style idea is about propensity. So if I give you a task and you, you're going to solve it, you may tend to solve it in, in one way or another. Um, and this, this, the major division that I talk about in the book is, is visualizing versus verbalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sort of think about it this way. Uh, if, you, um, if I give you a task where you're supposed to uh, remember a phone number, so I give you, or I give you a sequence, se- sequence of numbers, 472198. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you what those numbers were in, a, in, in five seconds. And you, you do something to rehearse. You could do it in a couple of ways. You could visually activate a, a representation of those numbers for whatever they were. I've forgotten what they were. <laughs> for for <laughs> 62098. Uh, let's pretend that's what they were. You might see those numbers in your mind's eye, either see them all together or see them flashing in front of you to get an idea of sequence. Um, if so, you're, you're adopting a, a visualization solution. Or you might adopt an, uh, maybe uh, a, a verbalization solution, which is you say them in your in your head. You, maybe you don't vocalize them overtly, but you think the sounds of the words, of, of the numbers in your head. You think uh, of what it would feel like to say and sound like to hear those numbers. Um, and then that would be a visualization solution. And people, when you give people tasks like this, you can see by self-report, when you ask them, well, how did you solve this? They report different things. And you can also see that, once again, if you interfere with their ability to do those things, that if they like to visualize and you interfere with visualization by having them do something visual at the same time, they get worse. Um, but the verbalizers don't get that much worse if you have them visualize. The verbalizers get worse if you have them do something else, like say the word the over and over and over, then they forget the numbers. Uh, <coughs> so, um, so yeah, people have these different propensities to, to verbalize and vocalize. And, um, and as a result, some people have really high degrees of visualization in lots of tasks, including language comprehension. So there's some people who, uh, you know, will hear about someone sitting at a bus stop, waiting at a bus stop, and they will get a really sharp visual image of what that would look like in lots of visual detail, maybe even color, and maybe there's a specific person, and maybe um, maybe there are details of what that person's wearing. They, they may get lots of rich detail, and other people make it very little. And in fact, about 5% of the population reports having no visual representation at all. Um, so, so what they get in their minds is just the word, for example, or the phrase? In that they, say they, they say they say it's the words. It's the words. Yeah, the yeah. words. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, that's their self-report. Um, and there's some brain imaging evidence that certain people use their uh, use their vision systems less when they're performing tasks like this, the same people who report not having visual imagery. Um, and we know that visual imagery is supported at least in part by parts of the vision system. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of variation. And so it's possible that when you're talking across cognitive styles, when a really rich ver- visualizer is talking to a, a much uh, much more preferential visual, uh, verbalizer. Maybe, maybe some failures to communicate are uh, are caused by different beliefs about what the other person must be experiencing through the language that they're sending. Like, how could you not? I said that that I said that I was sitting. How could you not infer that my pants were too tight? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was in fact the next question that I had for you. So, I mean. We've been talking about how language influences our thought, how culture does that, how people have different cognitive styles like being a verbalizer or a visualizer. So, I mean, at the end of the day, wouldn't it be fair to say that the correct question is not uh, why we misunderstand each other, but how can we even understand each other because of all of these differences, even in terms of the life experiences that we have and that lead to all of these constructs that we develop in our minds? I mean, you understand what I'm saying, right? Well, that okay. So I, I 100% agree. Uh, yeah. But I would add on that there's an even better question, which is do we understand? each other Um, and how can we tell and how can we tell I mean certainly we know that we have experiences of understanding Um, 
but how do we actually measure success in understanding? I mean, we can do it behaviorally. So in in an experiment, you know, you can you can tell whether one person successfully navigates the other person through a maze using only language, whether the outcome is successful. Um, that's a results-based measurement of successful communication. Um, is there another? Can we, so, so surely communication, successful, successful communication um, could be in principle measured by alignment of the sort of internal states of uh, the speaker and the comprehender, right? I am, I'm thinking of a cat and it's fat and it has stripes and it likes lasagna. Um, and you are thinking about a cat who's fat and has stri with stripes and likes lasagna. And so that's, and I said a word and so that's successful communication. Uh, that's possible in principle, but we actually don't have a great deal of precision uh, in order to measure exactly what's going on in our respective heads. It's very hard for us to tell, very hard for me to tell that my Garfield is aligned with your Garfield and that, um, in, and in all the relevant ways. So, so, um, we think based on behavioral measures, based on sort of outcomes or results based measures that oftentimes we're able to successfully communicate. Um, but, uh, there, there are certain theories of psycholinguistics that say that we oftentimes don't at all. Um, so some people say that, you know, our objective in communicating is really not at all to successfully transmit a uh, a proposition or a representation or something to another person such that they're aligned, but instead, it's just uh, it's it, it's some sort of social objective. So it's it's to align ourselves socially so that you like me and I like you, and that's really the objective. That is what communication is, and if we do that successfully, we've successfully communicated, and. For that purpose, we don't actually need to go all the way down to the details of, you know, how fat the cat is and what color its stripes are. Um, all we have to do is agree that we're going to be agreeable, and uh, all of the detailed representations may may or may not actually support that. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that's interesting, and I, I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure to what extent this is relevant to the discussion we're having here, but. Uh, there's, um, I guess, an epistemological theory in philosophy that people call solipsism, right? You might know what I'm talking about here, but basically it says that uh, we, we can't have access to other people's minds and we can't really be sure that even other people have minds. And I mean, at least after all that we've talked about here, uh, isn't that at least partially true? <laughs> oh, I, we certainly can't have, we certainly do not have direct direct access to other people's minds. Uh, uh, now, there are, there's the sort of the, the moral version of this, like the moral consequences of solipsism that I would, sure. would, wouldn't necessarily want to, want to endorse. Um, but yeah, no, we, we live in, 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 uh, in intrinsically, we are intrinsically bounded by our own experiences. Um, I think that, uh, I think, though, that rationally we can observe that other humans have similar physiologies to us, um, that other humans have uh, similar behaviors to us. Um, I think we can uh, we can we can reason out that there's pro there's a good likelihood that lots of lots of stuff that's happening in your mind and brain and body is similar to what's happening in mine. But that certainly doesn't entail that I have any reason to believe that it aligns or is identical or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, so let me ask you now, um, we've been talking about simulations, uh, for example, of physical objects. Um, how do we get from those kinds of simulations to abstract concepts? That is, how, how do we abstract one way up, I guess? Yeah, so let's, let's go through three possibilities. Okay. So, so one possibility is that we we don't. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm being very embodied embodied today because my my kid gave me a cold, <coughs> so I'm noticing uh, I'm noticing my body a lot. Um. Uh. Yeah. So. Uh. Right. One 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 version of the of the of the story is that abstract concepts are just different, and we can't know what truth is through any direct physical emotional experience 
it's something that we have to get from language or I guess from uh, on Fodor's view it has to be something innate there's a concept of truth mm -hmm. um, and it is it's just a totally different kind of thing mm -hmm. um, so that's one story it's very hard to falsify the sort of nativist view um, the uh, the view that we get it from language is actually quite interesting and there's work that's been done showing that um, people's um, the way people represent the meanings of abstract words kind of aligns really well with how those words are used in language more so than concrete words do so there's some evidence that people are learning a lot about about abstract words from language as you would expect right when you learn about truth you're learning about it in context in which people say that a thing is true and what truth is like and so on and so you then have to extrapolate from those situations okay that's one um, a second is that uh, you are uh, you are learning about over the course of development. You're learning about abstract concepts through concrete concepts that they're described in terms of. And so this is kind of like the idea of pervasive conceptual metaphor. So when we talk about truth, um, we don't talk about we we don't talk about truth um, in just arbitrary ways. We talk about it in ways that are grounded in physical experiences. So we talk about um, and we do this for not just truth, but for lots of abstract stuff, for quantity, for um, happiness, for uh, uh, for numerosity. We talk about all these things in concrete terms. We talk about numbers as objects where, you know, you add numbers together, you put them together. The words that you use are put them together or take one away in English when you're and, – and we still say that as adults. And it could be that the way that we learn about these abstract concepts is – through concrete ones. That is, we know things about objects and putting them together, and we scaffold our understanding of number and addition and subtraction and so on off of that concrete knowledge. And we continue to use um, that scaffolding later in life. So even when you're an adult and you're thinking about addition, maybe you, th you are thinking about objects being together or you're thinking about number lines or all the other ways that you concretely um, metaphorize abstract concepts. That's that's version number two. Version number three is uh, maybe you understand abstract concepts in terms of the varied physical situations in which in which you experience those abstract concepts. So so truth you get tr you get an experience of truth when you have an experience of alignment between your beliefs and your observations. So you have a true belief when you believe, I believe that my cup is black. I believe that my cup is black. You have that experience, and then you have a perceptual experience that, aha, uh, fortunately the cup is black. That is truth. Falsity is when those things don't align. And that experience over experiences is, uh, could be the, the basis for, for the experience of what truth is. Um, uh, there may be other experiences of, uh, uh, that ground truth. Um, in that same way. So those are those are three different ideas. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think that we learn a lot about truth from language. I think we learn about a lot about it from our experiences. And I think that there may, may be ways that we scaffold it off of concrete things that it's metaphorically described or analogically described in terms of. But yeah, those are the that's the that's the sort of going best story. Mm -hmm. And it isn't the case that one of them has more scientific support than the others at the moment. Um, as a general solution, no. I think that there. I think that there's confirmatory support for. Uh, there's the most confirmatory support for there being metaphorical bases for continuing uh, cognition about abstract concept. Um, you know, we've done a lot of that work in my lab, um, and lots of other labs uh, have done fantastic work. Lara Boroditsky, who's my colleague, has uh, been a pioneer in that for a long time. Ray Gibbs. Um, uh, and many others um, have have done fantastic work on showing that yeah even when you're merely thinking about when you're, even when you're merely thinking about happiness you uh, look up more um, because we talk about happiness is up like you're feeling up versus feeling down even if you're merely thinking about the future you orient towards the front because we talk about the future as ahead um, and uh, and so there are these yeah there, that seems Kind of lots of evidence for that and that's not just linguistic evidence that's evidence about cognition more generally there's lots of evidence for that there's 
burgeoning evidence for the extraction from language story that we use sort of statistical evidence from how the words are used in the language in general. You know, as computation gets more powerful, you know, these language models that we now have become more powerful, um, we're able to see exactly how much information is contained in the language around us about the words that we know. And so you can start to ask, well, how much of human knowledge about these words could in principle come from uh, from exposure to language? And, and there's, there's, so there's more and more evidence about that. Yeah. Um, there isn't really any knockdown evidence against any of them at present. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now let's go for the last, and I guess one of the million dollar questions. Sure. So we've been talking about embodied simulation, but yes. there's a question that we've been missing, I guess. What is it really good for? I mean, right. why do we have embodied simulation? And I, I mean, why can't we exist exactly the same without having embodied simulation? Right. Uh, well, one way to think about it is that it's, it, it provides a utility advantage. Uh, if you think about like what's hypothesized to be going on in simulation, people are hypothesized to be using their vision systems to construct visual scenes to allow them to understand and perform inferences about what others are saying and writing. They're using their motor systems to construct motor inferences of what it would be like to reach out and uh, grab a set of keys so that they can again perform inferences and so on. Um, uh, so w one way to uh, answer you know what's the what's the what's the benefit is that the benefit may be efficiency. Those systems, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we know have been tuned over the course of primate and mammalian human evolution um, to be really good at making predictions about what something will feel like or what something will look like to um, to facilitate behaviors. And uh, if you had to perform those inferences in some other way, it might be far less efficient. So imagine now that you have to, that everything you know about what things look like, you have to re-represent in some other internal system, some other format. You've got to come up with a system for representing what things look like, but it can't be the vision system. Mm -hmm. How would you do it? Well, you could just copy the vision system. You could have one-to-one -one connections between every neuron here and every neuron there. Now you have the vision system prime, which is just the internal, okay, so that doesn't seem super efficient. Um, uh, nor does it seem like the type of thing that that, that neural systems evolved to do. Um, uh, or you could transform it into some other format. So you could like transmute it into like a like a language of thought or something like that. Mm -hmm. That that wouldn't be a very good system for making visual inferences because the, because visual inferences like does this does the does a thing shaped like this fit into a thing like this? I mean, those are judgment calls that you you're best able to solve by doing visual comparison, the size and shape of one thing versus the size and shape of the other thing. If you had to write propositions, let's say, or um, had to tune a neural network, say, to be able to perform that op those operations, it would be a lot of work to do that. And, um, and it's not clear what advantage it would give you to do that transduction into a different system in the, in the first place. Um, so, uh, so, in a sense, it seems like for the purpose of performing inferences, for the purposes of fleshing out what someone means in order to be able to act on it, in order in, in order to be able to understand the next sentence, which may depend on you having uh, a deep understanding, in order to be able to um, uh, anticipate what a person is going to say next, it seems like these other systems get recruited to perform to perform a, a little bit of calculation to allow the the organism to respond optimally and most efficiently. So I think it would be, without it, it would be a decrease in specificity of representation, mm -hmm. in ability to predict the future, in ability to perform inferences and be able to understand what, what a person really meant or why they said it. I think those would be the, those would be the drawbacks. And as you said, <coughs> with language, we really want to know uh, not uh, not why do we sometimes fail to understand each other, but how do we ever understand each other? And I think that simulation actually provides a large part, and inference more generally, is, is a large part of the answer to, to how we're ever able to understand one another. 
the word cat could mean so many different things. In English, it could refer to a house cat. It could refer to a, t a lion or a tiger. It could refer to a, a particular uh, brand of um, construction vehicle and uh, or many other things. It could be a woman's name. There are all certain kinds of things that it could be. Um, and in context, by constraining what you think the language is about and using systems for, for perception, action, and so on, you're able to limit the uncertainty so that the parts of your brain that are that are that are good at you know putting together the pieces of the, the, the pieces of words and the words into sentences can do their job most effectively and not have to solve these really huge problems of what kind of thing is a cat and what color is it and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way they're they're there to um, yeah they're they're there to facilitate um, communication surrounding a language that is radically underspecified. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let me just ask you this before we go. Um, at the beginning, when we were referring to embodied cognition, I, I gave the example of some robots that people use to, for, for them to better understand the way by which our body is structured might influence how the organism behaves and the kinds of information from the environment that it is able to store just in its mechanics, let's say. But uh, we can also go the other way around, right? By studying embodied simulation and embodied cognition in humans, it can also give us tools and knowledge to build or construct new AI systems that perform better, right? That's, so that's the idea. Um, in practice, solving uh, embodied simulation is a, is a, is a very hard thing, right? Because you have to be able to represent objects in the world. You have to solve, basically you have to solve motor control and vision. Um, and in the general case, that's very hard for humans. Uh, so, so really what we've seen so far is sort of very small scale implementations. If you implement a, a particular bit of simulation for a particular domain, mm -hmm. does that facilitate inference, language comprehension, language generation, and so on? Um, the answer there is, is that it's quite promising. Um, right now, in terms of the sort of top of the line AI systems, language models are most successful when they just use a, a brute force method, right? It's just, it's just superficial language all the way down. And that will be true to, to a point. Um, but there will be a point where you just don't have enough data to be able to predict uh, w what a person can anticipate. So uh, there's, there's an old example. This is uh, uh, a paper by, by Art Glenberg where he asks uh, people to make judgments about the likelihood of a particular sentence. So um, in context, so it could be something like, uh, Susan forgot uh, her pillow when she went camping. So she uh, filled uh, a sweater with a bunch of leaves. Yeah. Okay, should make sense. Um, and compare that with the sentence, uh, Susan uh, forgot her pillow when she went camping, so she filled a sweater with a bunch of rocks. <laughs> okay, so for a human, there's a big difference between those two sentences in terms of comprehensibility. We can see uh, a, a P, uh, uh, an N400 uh, fire in your brain. Your, your brain goes all, uh, goes all crazy when you, when you get to rocks versus when you get to uh, leaves. Yeah. Um, it may be that there's no amount of training on uh, on Wikipedia and the entire web or anything like that that will ever allow a language model to make that same prediction and or to know why one is less likely than the other or to make inferences about how Susan would feel the next day and whether to expect uh, you know black and blue marks on her on her head and face um, in one case or the other. Um, th those are things that may never be achievable by just scaling up and just using, you know, language statistics and that are going to have to be solvable using something like simulation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Bergen, let's end the interview here. Before we go, would you like to tell people what are the best places on the internet for them to find your work? Yeah, so I'm uh, a dinosaur. I don't have any social media, anything. 
Um, you can find me at the UC San Diego Cognitive Science Department. I have a web, web page there that uh, lists that lists all my things. And um, this has been a fantastic interview, and I really appreciate it, Ricardo. I think um, there have been some other interviews with far less detail and far less um, interest, um, but about other topics that I work on, including profanity and other things that they can find on my web page as well. Yeah, yeah. Pro probably one of these days we can... Uh, gather together again to do an interview on your other book, What the F, right? Because I, I also read it, but I mean, the interview was already so long that I really had to cut that part out, so unfortunately. But anyway, I will be leaving links to your work in the description box of the interview and also to your books uh, so that people can go and read them if they want. They are very interesting. And uh, Dr. Bergen, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. And it was a real pleasure to everyone. It's been really fun. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, you can also help me through PayPal. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perugel Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Sergio Condriano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Drs. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss and Bo Weingart, my four producers, Isar Webe, Rosie, Jim Frank and Lucas Stafiniak and finally my executive my executive producer Michel Rujewski thank you for all